Well, good morning. Can we give the, uh, the worship team and just the, the sound crew a hand today as we go on? I know by, by some math accounts, there's only about 45 minutes a week that they lead us in worship, but I promise there's a lot more that goes into it, especially, um, I mean, all of them, they do a lot, and so we are grateful for them to lead us in this time. Um, man, it's good to be with you guys in worship today. Amen? I know, uh, I'm Jeff, I'm the youth pastor, by the way. Um, I grew up in church, and so it was always something that I looked forward to. I enjoyed it. But I think there's definitely something about taking it for granted, being able to meet. And obviously this year, we didn't always have that opportunity. And so um, with Mass, without, um, I'm eager to be here with you guys today. It's something I always look forward to. Um, I'm especially excited today. I'm getting to share with you guys. I know um, Ridge and Tracy are always missed. They are uh, out in the panhandle this week visiting Nathan and Ashley, seeing some of other new grandkids. So um, they'll be back. Don't worry. It's just a week. You can handle it. So um, no, thank you guys for being here today, though. In a world that seems increasingly divided, sometimes it feels like it's kind of, it's pulling at the seams. In a culture that demands uh, you either join this camp or that camp, or you have to wear a label, you have to fit in, you have to support this, and if you don't, you support that. Um, I feel that pressure sometimes. You ought to feel that way? You ever feel like, what if I don't fit in either of those two groups? <laughs> uh, no, in a world like that, I think um, today we're going to look to our ambassador, Jesus, to show us, um, to answer a question, and that question is, um, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You know, the term neighbor is interesting um, when you think about it because it can carry a wide range of ideas. So in my mind, when I think of neighbors, I think of the falteses and the bells. Did anyone else think of them? <laughs> no, because you didn't grow up next to them. And we have different ideas. Are they the people that you go to church with? Are they people that you shop with? Are they the kids, are the families that go to the same school your kids do? Who is our neighbors? The people that live adjacent to us. Um, some of you might think about these guys up here. What do you think of neighbors? That's a, <laughs> all of our college students are like, I was born in 1998 and I don't know who that is. So. Um, <laughs> or 2000, gosh, that's crazy. Uh, right, you have a Wilson, Heidi Ho neighbor, okay? Y'all remember him? Full of weird, strange wisdom. Uh, you have Mr. Rogers, who always wanted you to be his neighbor. Um, realistically, though, who's our neighbor? You know, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. You can go ahead and flip there if you want. And once again, Jesus uses the parable to instruct our hearts and our minds on how they ought to operate. He uses the parable um, to challenge common thinking and to address us where we are. You know, in this portion of Scripture, we're also going to see an expert of the law ask some, some good questions, but also some kind of softball questions. Someone his age, someone who knows what he knows ought to know better. And so they're questions of responsibility. They're questions of righteousness. So we're going to read today's passage and then we'll jump in. It's going to be Luke chapter 10. We're going to read verses 25 through 37. He says that an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him. He said, how do you read it? 
He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells them, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, it's verse 29, um, the expert in the law, he asks Jesus, he says, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question further and he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him up, and they fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look to your scripture this morning, as we study a a teaching of Christ, God, I pray that our hearts are, are sensitive to your leading. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit um, convict, convicts specifically. Father, we would know exactly um, what in our heart has, is not lined up with you, with your will for how we love other people. Lord, I pray for um, your body here um, in Temple, Texas, to be edified this week. Lord, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your ministry, that um, we would leave today, Father, um, more in line with, with your heart for who we are, looking more like Christ. God, I pray that we would leave as better um, husbands and wives, as moms and dads, as um, friends, as siblings, God, as workers, as students, that you would use this, um, Lord, to build into your church and to build into this community. Lord, speak clearly, speak loudly. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So verses 25 through 29 is where it starts off. And we see um, the questions that, that are asked here. And on a surface level, they're good questions to ask. First thing he says, um, teacher, what must I do to be saved, to, to inherit eternal life? You know, this expert of the law, he may or may not respect Jesus. He definitely doesn't see him as a Messiah yet. Probably not even a prophet. He's a peer. He's someone who he wants to, um, to test, to evaluate his knowledge. And so he asks this question. And uh, Jesus, if you spent any time reading the Gospels, he doesn't have a whole lot of time for games. He knows who this guy is. He knows that he's an expert in the law. And so why are you asking me Sunday school questions? You're a seminary student. You know this. And so Jesus asks him, he says, well, you tell me how you read it. And this guy, speaking of Sunday school answers, provides it. If you've heard that before, it's because uh, Jesus also said the same thing. That's a good answer. But that's not really the answer he's looking for, is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So verse 29, we get to the heart of this expert's question. It wasn't about how to inherit eternal life. He already knew that. He wanted some clarity. 
Part of me thinks he wanted some disobedience in his life to be validated because he didn't want to have to fulfill this. He knew he couldn't. So he says, verse 29, this is an important question. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? If there are people that we are commanded to love, it would reason that there's people we're commanded not to love, right? No. <laughs> That's his thought process. He's saying, okay, surely there's going to be like a target demographic, and hopefully it's Jews just like me. Or hopefully it's people who live just in my neighborhood. Uh, he's trying to figure this out because um, it sounds like he's asking, what's the least amount of work I can do and still keep the law? Have you heard of the bare minimum? That's what I'm interested in. It reminds me, uh, I'm not pointing fingers college students, okay? If, if this is convicting, maybe it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's just my experience. I don't know. It reminds me of the college student who's sitting there at this point in the semester, and they're thinking, what is the absolute worst grade I can get on my final exam and still make a D? I know none of our crusaders would ever do that. Okay, y'all are... When I was at Tarleton, though, there was a time where I was like, if I make an 84, <laughs> the Lord has had favor. Uh, no, what's the least I can do? Sometimes you have coworkers and they're like, what's the least I can do without getting fired? <laughs> you know, or what's the most over the speed limit I can drive without getting pulled over? Sometimes we play that game and we lose. What's the bare minimum? What's the least amount of effort I can give? Sometimes it's desperation. I get it. You're doing your best. Sometimes it's a lack of priorities. Oftentimes, that's the second one. It's the lack of priorities. I've been there too. The Greek word for neighbor, um, I'm going to butcher this. I haven't taken Greek yet. Okay, so have grace. Uh, plesion, that's the Greek word for neighbor. It often implies an affiliation of proximity or of business dealings. Okay, so proximity to the people that you live in the same community with, maybe people that you work alongside. You know, so you go to a small town gas station, a lot of times you can get to know the clerks because they're the same people. Um, your neighbors. And so they took a very narrow view of what love your neighbor went, because that was easier. And so my view of who my neighbor was, was exactly um, the people that looked like me, the people that talked like me, the people that worshipped where I worshipped. I had to narrow that view, because there's no way I could love everyone like my neighbor. Certainly not Samaritans, certainly not Gentiles. They had their preferences. They had their prejudices. They had um, it set up where they didn't have to love people that they didn't think were worth loving or they didn't see the world the same way. That sounds familiar, don't it? This could, this could be a 2020 question right here. All right, Jesus, I know you say to love my neighbors, but certainly not the people who support that policy. Or certainly not the people who worship at this different church or don't go to church at all or let their kids do this or whatever it is. We make these like, parameters around who our neighbor's going to be. We trim it up until it fits my life. I trim it until it fits and what I'm able to do, what I'm comfortable with, what I've deemed worthy. We take these laws from God, and we say, okay, how would this make sense? We take this command, okay, what would that look like in my life? But that's not the, that's not the question. That's not how commands work. I talk to my, uh, our high school and middle school students about this a lot. Is imagine showing up to practice, and the coach is like, all right, hey, you're going to have to run two honeybee miles. Like, well, today I'm pretty tired. So I think I'm going to run a half one, and we'll just call it good. Right, coach? That's not how it works. But that's what we do with these commands from God. That's what we do with these instructions to love other people. 
So really the first thing we see here is that the motive in this question was incorrect. It was skewed from the get-go. The motive in this man's question wasn't really what must I do to inherit eternal life. It's what's the easiest path where I won't get smited? (laughs) What's the easiest path where I can still be counted righteous? What's the bare minimum? And today, in this parable that we read, we're going to work through it, and we're going to see how Jesus corrects that line of thinking. Dr. Um, Tom Constable, he was a longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He uh, is one of the guys that planted the church that I grew up in, up in Plano, and he has a really, like, elaborate commentary. It's, it's pretty cool. It's online, worth checking out, enhances your study a lot. Um, he states that a popular definition of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Okay, it's something we can get our hands on. Okay, it makes sense to us with a heavenly meaning. Beyond that, though, he says the Greek word parabole means something placed alongside something else for the sake of comparison. Okay, it's a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. I said that backwards, didn't I? It's tangible. Okay, earthly story, heavenly meaning, principles to teach or something placed alongside something else for the sake of comparison. And so Jesus tells the story because he's giving us something to compare it to. He tells a story um, to offer us a different perspective on what we're looking at, on how we're seeing the world. And so verses 30 through 31, he tells us that this unfortunate man is robbed, he's stripped, he's beaten, and he's left for dead on a well-known passage from Jerusalem to Jericho. For us, we've heard of Jerusalem, we've heard of Jericho, um, but to his listeners at the time, this is a common trade pathway. And this is like me saying, hey, there was a man who broke down in his car on his way from Temple to Austin. Okay, can you all imagine that drive right now? Take 93, I see the exit getting onto 35. We've done that, we've been there before. So Jesus tells them this because it puts them in the story. They can imagine themselves being the one who got robbed there. They can also imagine coming across an accident there or seeing someone who got robbed. So it tells us a story where we become the characters because what he's trying to do, he's not saying this story is about you, but in a parable, you need something to compare it to. And so he's placed you in the driver's seat. And we hear of three different people that encounter this man who's been robbed on the side of the road. The priest, the Levite, the Samaritan. I don't think it's a joke, but it sounds like a good one, so someone should write that, okay? Um, no, he tells these three people. First, the priest, a busy man with a title, whose job, don't lose the irony here, his job is to help people. (laughs) But he's busy. He's probably helped people time and time again. I don't imagine being a very good priest and not having a heart for people. But for that reason, today, he did not have the time. He didn't have the desire. Maybe he had a tea time with a church member. Maybe he had a lunch appointment. Maybe he needed to study. Whatever it is, um, it doesn't talk about the motive here. What he points out, though, is an intentional effort to avoid the situation. It says the priest sees the man and he passes by on the other side. That's uncomfortable to look at. Um, Honestly, it is a man who's been stripped and beaten. It's probably not a very pleasant sight. He's going to pass around on the other side. He makes an intentional effort to dodge it. Second, a Levite. I kind of compare this for our students. The priest is kind of like your pastor. The Levite's kind of like your deacon, okay? Someone else who also knows the law. Someone else who also knows what they ought to be doing. 
someone who assists in worship on a weekly basis. And once again, we don't know where he's coming or where he's going or why he chose not to stop and help. All we are told is that he makes an intentional effort not to stop and help. He passes by on the other side. You know, I think it's interesting that each of these men were too busy with their plans, perhaps even plans of ministry. They might have been on their way um, to preach a message, to lead a good news club, to meet someone over coffee and discipleship. They might have been on their way to do something good, but they were so busy with what they had planned, with what they had scheduled, they missed the opportunity in the present. They're so busy with what they want to do, with what they've decided they're supposed to do that day, that they can't even stop and see the present need. You know, it's funny, like, how often do we do this? Where, well, oh, sorry, I can't help with that. I have a church event that day. Sometimes it's a pleasant out. <laughs> but really, it's like, no, if you are in ministry, or if you serve in ministry, or if you are about ministry, you're not about looking for opportunities to not help. But we get so regimented in our thinking. We say, well, I, I do ministry from 9.15 on Sunday mornings to hopefully no later than 12.05. And Wednesdays sometimes, too, we have it measured out. But whenever we do that, we miss opportunities. We are not people who breathe life throughout the week. We are not people um, who engage in discipleship throughout the week, because guess what? It doesn't fit in our boxes for, for church. You know, I think we need to stop um, doing sometimes. I think that's something that Something else 2020 has forced a lot of us to do is to slow down and you spend more time at home or you don't get to go and do all the things you wanted to do. And my point isn't that we, we stop serving the Lord, um, but let's not just do things that serve the Lord. Let's be people who serve the Lord. People talk about um, being instead of doing. Because when I'm doing, I show up, I put on my, um, my church uniform, I do it and I leave and I leave it behind. But when, I'm, when I am being, I'm in the moment. I'm able to stop and talk to someone who's hurting on the way to class because um, I have compassion for them. Or I'm able to do things that weren't quite how I planned them because guess what? I'm being about the Lord's work that day. That's the heart attitude we're after here. And that's why the Samaritan, the least likely candidate, is the one um, who Jesus tells us about. A Samaritan is a person who's scorned by Jewish society someone who is often looked over themselves, someone who is not popular, not sought after, is the person who in this story stops to check in on the man who's in need. And if he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's a really good chance this man's a Jew. And so as the Samaritan approaches him, he probably has the thought, if the roles were reversed, this dude would not stop for me. But he does it anyway. Although he's also on his way, the Samaritan's traveling. He has something planned. He has something to get to. This person responds differently. And there's a key reason in here we're going to see why he responds differently. It's not because he's just an overall better person. Not because he was parented in a better way. No, the text reveals something powerful about his response. Um, look with me again. Verse 33 but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had what? Pity, compassion. 
That's the key word there. The first two don't have that. They don't get close enough to possibly have pity or compassion. They pass by on the other side. And when I hear that, when I hear about somebody being moved by compassion, you should hear, um, you should see shades of Jesus' ministry. There's multiple accounts in the Gospels where Jesus is worn out, he's tired, he's been with people all day, he's been teaching all day, he probably hasn't had a chance to sit down, to eat, to just be by himself. Um, one of my favorite accounts is they take the boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, right? They're trying to get away from the crowds. And he gets there, and guess what? At this time, his ministry is pretty popular, so there's already people there waiting for him. And it says that Jesus steps out, and he looks, and it says um, he was moved by compassion because he saw them, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion is what took hold of this Samaritan and moved him to action. By compassion, he is moved to sacrificially give of his own medical salves and ointments to care for the stranger. He is moved um, to literally transport this man on his own animal to a place with a bed. He is moved to give of his own money and his own resources so that this man would be cared for in his recovery. You know, in each of our lives, there is something that moves us. There's something that motivates us. There's something that propels us in a direction. And depending on the week, it could be a couple different things. And I think it's important for us as believers to take an inventory often on what is moving me, what's propelling me. Is it uh, saving for retirement? Is it getting this degree? Is it feeding my family? None of those are bad things. You should take care of your family. But we stop at it and we look and we see Sometimes selfish motives are also moving us. My free time, my ease, what I want to do. And so when selfish motives are what moves us, they move us in the wrong direction. Selfish motives move me around the man who's beaten on the side of the road. Okay, they move me in a different direction. Selfish motives cause us to walk the wide way around the need. Sometimes they even harden our hearts and we say, well, if they just handled their business better, then maybe they wouldn't be in that situation. We don't know the full story. And even if you do, guess what? Jesus is still um, compelling us to be moved by compassion, not by judgment, not by smaller circles, not by smaller tables. No, he says, um, and this is what we're getting to, you don't get to choose who your neighbor is. That's not what this is about. You'll know it's compassion moving you whenever you draw closer to the need instead of further. You'll know it's compassion whenever you draw closer to the hurt, to the wound, um, to the student that's hardest to handle, to the family members that just need a lot. You'll know it's compassion whenever it draws you into the wound. A helpful way and a practical way for me to think through this is, is this movement in my life, is it convenient or is it sacrificial? Because there are times where you can do good things out of convenience. And if it's convenient, it doesn't make it less helpful. If you're already on that side of the town, whoever you help out is going to be appreciative. But my hard attitude needs to be one that is okay with sacrificial giving, not just convenience. Finally, in verse 36 and 37, we uncover the real question and the real answer. Verse 36, Jesus asked him, he says, 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Verse 37, he says, the one who showed mercy to him. I love this question by Jesus, because guess what? It fits with the first question, but you all notice it's different? Jesus, what he's doing, um, he takes the original question, which is, who was my neighbor? And he flips it, and he says, which of these people proved to be neighborly? In one statement, Jesus moves the focus from the object that's receiving mercy to the one who deals it. So often we look at the object receiving things. Are they worthy? Do they deserve that? Are they going to squander resources that we give? Are they going to do this or whatever it is? And Jesus takes a second and he says, hey, I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about you. I'm not worried about the person who's in need. I'm worried about the heart of the person who's going to help them. This expert in the law, he was thinking wrong all along. That's, what Jesus, that's why Jesus teaches us this parable. All along, the question is, who's my neighbor? So which people fall into this category of people I'm supposed to love as I love myself? You know, it really is selfishness and sin that cause us to ask, what is the least I can do and still be approved? It's selfishness and sin that cause us to, they say, who? No, I need you exactly who is my neighbor. Because I'm going to be real fed up if I go help them and it didn't help my cause at all. That's not how the gospel works. It's not about that. We shouldn't have this heart attitude. It's like, well, you know, you only have so much time in the day. Uh, No, who is your neighbor? No, are you a good neighbor? Are you neighborly? And it's, it's so challenging because we want to be legalistic about it. And we want to love people who belong to our groups or to our clubs or people who validate what we're doing or people that um, care for us. Or they, they, they wind up in the same place we do. But if they act different, if they vote different, if they live in the wrong place, if they shop at the wrong store, if they root for the wrong team, all of a sudden I have these list of reasons. Not really one of my neighbors, are you? No, we build this list. We don't mind loving our neighbors so long as we get to pick exactly who they are. That's the truth of this statement. That's what Jesus has come to challenge, is saying, hey, um, expert in the law, you already know who you think your neighbors are. You don't want to hear me tell you who they are. You want me to validate and say, hey, as long as you love your five favorite people most of the time, you're probably okay. No, we don't mind loving our neighbors so long as we can pick who they are, when it happens, where it happens, how it happens, why it happens. Hey, as long as I'm in control, Lord, I can handle it. But he shares this this parable of coming across a wounded person on the side of the road, because guess what? It's unexpected. It's not planned. He didn't get to regiment and say, am I going to have like the social energy or the desire or enough free time this week to still, if I help them for three hours on Saturday, do I still get to do what I want to do? It's embarrassing, but I've literally thought that way. I have to challenge that thought in my mind of, hey, it's not just about what you want to do, man. No, Jesus shows us something greater. That's why he asked him, he says, which of these three proved to be neighborly? The one who showed mercy. Are you someone who shows mercy? Because the last thing Jesus says here is now go and do the same. I think part of being neighborly is realizing the fullness of the gospel. 
And when we stop and we realize that how needy I really am, how needy you really are, the fact that Jesus' work on the cross covers you, that should propel us in compassion. That should draw us to other people because um, I've not always had my stuff together. And then just to make sure I went and got married, and now I have someone in my life who can be like, hey, Jeff, you don't have your stuff all together. It's a really close mirror, and it shows us things. And sometimes when you're just like flying solo, you don't see it, man. No, that's why we need community. That's why we need um, to pursue Jesus with other people who are also pursuing Jesus. It doesn't have to be a spouse. No, you, you share an office with a Braden Tanner, you learn some things. There's community there, and it shows us blind spots, and it says, hey, um, I think you're just doing this because it's convenient. Or I think um, you planned this, this ministry event. Is this really what's best, or is it just what we've always done? Is this really what the Lord's leading us into, or is it just what we've always done? In a time where uh, we see a country that is honestly just angry a lot of the time, frustrated with each other, that doesn't really want to understand the other side, that can't possibly understand the other side, I think it's incredibly important that we as a church buckle down because guess what? The love that that flows out of this place is going to become like a starker and starker contrast as things spread apart. When everyone's polite and kind. Yeah, it might fall through the cracks sometimes, but as things um, deteriorate or things get pushed from one side to the other, when the church stands in the middle and says, hey, the gospel's greater than any of that, it's a pretty, pretty serious contrast. It's something that people see. It's something they can hold on to. And so my challenge for, for all of us this week is to stop looking for loopholes to justify the absence of our obedience. Stop looking for loopholes I'm talking to myself here to justify the absence of your obedience. Because guess what? Greatness in the, in the kingdom isn't, uh, you don't sneak up on it. You don't cut in line. You don't create a really small list of neighbors and say you love them well. No. <laughs> he says who serves will be exalted. Book of James tells us humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So we don't decide, and we don't get to judge who our neighbor is, but we are to live in a way that is neighborly. As we get ready to close today, I think it's actually a worthwhile question. What must you do, what must I do, to inherit eternal life? The command that Jesus gives is a pretty tall one. You know, you... you, talk through this real quick, and you send people on their way, and they're like, okay, all I have to do this week is love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength, <laughs> and love my neighbor as myself. That's a fullness there that my sin won't let me have. Apart from Christ, apart from his lordship in our life, we won't be able to love others as Christ has loved us. And essentially, if you boil down that command, that's what it's saying. This order is too tall by design. And that's why Jesus shares this parable, not because he's trying to pile on guilt, not because he's trying to inspire us to do better and to take better care of people this week. No, what he's trying to do is remind us of his work on the cross, the power that flows from his death and resurrection, because it's not something we're going to earn. 
that expert in the law, it was all head knowledge. He knew it, and that's why he was looking for a shortcut, because guess what? Um, he was smart enough to realize, I'm not going to be able to do that on my own. And so for, in order for us to be a better neighbor, we have to stop trying to be a better neighbor. And what we have to do is love the Lord well. We have to surrender, and we have to let him use us. Because then all of a sudden, you start walking in the Spirit, and when you see um, opportunities that come up throughout the day, some people call these divine appointments. <laughs> when you see people in need throughout the day, when you see conversations that need to be had, when you see that there's someone um, that you love that needs something from you and you just don't have anything to give them that day, seek the Lord. Let him handle it from the overflow that he provides you. My goal, <laughs> my heart is to be available to Christ and the things he has for me. And we can trust that he's going to give us what we need each day. It's not a test. You know, if life's the test, then we're all getting pretty bad marks. We're not, it's not grading on a curve. It's saying, hey, here's my expectation. Here's what you're able to do. Trust me with it, and I'll get you there. Trust me with it, and I will show you how to love other people well. He shares this with the hopes that we will realize we can't earn righteousness. It must be imputed from him. I feel like Jesus stands up after this and he says, stop trying to do it without me. You're an expert in the law, but you don't know anything. Stop trying to do this apart from me. As the band comes back up and we close our time together today, there's a few things that I want us to address as a group. You know, as followers of Christ, we have an opportunity to love other people well in sacrificial and in substantial ways. And if you're willing, sometimes in really surprising ways. As we move into to invitation time, I want you guys to be thinking, what moves you? What leads you to action? Is it desperation? Is it hope that if you work hard enough, then maybe he'll accept you? Because that's the wrong motive. That's not full. Is it selfish motives? Is you know what you're supposed to do, but you don't want to because you'd rather do your own thing? Is there compassion in your heart for those who are in need, or have we made a habit of searing our conscience to the need of others? I've dealt with my own problems. They can deal with theirs. It's America, the land of opportunity. Here's some boots. Pull yourself up, right? <laughs> thank God for people who work hard. No, thank God for opportunities that he's given us. But guess what? He's also given us people in our lives um, who have shown compassion for us. Some of us, maybe more than others, but guess what? The command is the same. If you felt calloused lately to the need of others, or if you felt frustrated with people needing... <laughs> or people asking you for things. Right here, right now, we can confess, we can repent, and we can trust that if we follow Jesus, he's going he's gonna to give us what we need. He will supply. You feel like you don't have compassion in your heart? Ask him for it. What moves you? Second thing, whose neighbor will you be this week? Maybe it needs to be the people that you live next to. 
coworkers, classmates. Could be any number of people. The love that we have received through Christ ought to transcend our social boundaries. It ought to be bigger than whatever social fabric we're a part of. Truthfully, it is. I just have to remind myself to get out of the way. Let them work in your life, let them work through your life, and in ways that are bigger and bolder than you can ask or imagine. Maybe you realize today that part of the reason you've never been able to love people super well is because you don't know the love of Christ. That's, where, that's the starting place for any of this, is for your life to be in Christ. Y'all go ahead and stand up with me. I don't know what the Lord's speaking to you, but I know the front is always open. I'll be down here if you need prayer. There's other people who you can always pray with. But no, in a world that wants to pick who their neighbor is or who's deserving of their love, let's be different. Let's be the church. Truthfully, whatever resource you have that you're holding onto too tight came from the Lord anyway. And so if he's given it to me, it's not my job to be tight-fisted with it. Trust him with it. What moves you? And whose neighbor are you going to be this week? Would you all pray with me? Father, I ask that, Lord, that your spirit would work. God, that we would confess and we would repent of or the selfishness or the prejudices in our lives. God, that we'd stop looking to people and evaluate whether or not they are worthy of our time and effort or of our love. But God, we would just be led by your spirit. Jesus, whenever um, you call us somewhere, we move that direction with urgency. That we give generously, Father, that we love people well. God, that we would be workable tools in your hand. I pray for boldness today, God, for people to... Lord, to, to make a statement, to come forward, and um, Lord, just ask for your help. I know this is something that we, uh, none of us are perfect or flawless, and God, there's all people that we have in our lives that are hard to love. Lord, that you'd help us to move boldly. God, I pray that you would comfort those, Lord, who, who have been looked over, Father, who have not had compassion shown on them. And Lord, that even um, your Holy Spirit is powerful enough, God, to supply their every need and to empower them to be people who are compassionate, even if they've never seen it. We love you, Jesus, and we ask that you work in this time. Amen.